Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hey there, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. And if this is your first episode, I would like to let you know that this show is a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if ag podcasts, blogs, and vlogs are your thing, check them out at farmruralag.com. We are in the middle of this series on sustainability at scale, and one of my favorite parts of the this podcast, just in general, the whole podcast is we get to look at how agriculture can be a solution to some of our biggest problems. And that's certainly true from a sustainability lens. You know, we can go ahead and make the assumption we need to produce food, fiber, natural resources so that we humans can sustain ourselves. So with that assumption, how can we do so in a way that solves some sustainability-related problems and economic-related problems and social-related problems? Uh, I think that's what's interesting about the stories we get to bring to you on this show. And definitely this series on sustainability has reminded me or, or maybe revealed to me is a better way of saying that, that today is one of the most exciting times to be in agriculture. The innovation, the investment, the ideas we have in this industry give our producers more tools in their toolbox than ever before. And today's example is certainly a great illustration of that. We have on the show Dr. Pamela Marone, who's the CEO and founder of Marone Bio Innovations. That should sound familiar to you because they are also, uh, Marone Bio Innovations is the sponsor of this podcast. And Dr. Marone was our guest on episode 19. So those of you longtime listeners out there will remember her from episode 19. If you weren't around during episode 19 of this podcast, uh, I highly recommend you go back and check that out because some of the things we talk about here today will build on a, on that interview uh, with, with Dr. Marone way back when. But what comes through even more is, is this idea of tools in the toolbox for today's producer. Now, um, Marone Bio Innovation specialize in um, biopesticides or ways to manage pests on, on a farm um, biologically. And if you're like me, maybe at first your mind goes to, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense because organic farmers have limited options when it comes to chemical use. So they're going to want biopesticides. And yes, that's very true. But also there's a lot of reasons for conventional growers to use these same products. And she illustrates a couple of them, one of which is resistance. You've probably heard about super pests or uh, pests building up resistance to the chemicals that are used uh, to produce our food. The biologicals work in a way, and she explains this much better than I can, so I'm going to let her. They work in a way that allows uh, um, us to manage those pests without building up resistance to the product because of their modes of action. Uh, also, she cites a great example of residues. I didn't know this until our interview, but certain fresh products have different residue tolerances if they're being exported. So if they sell them domestically, it's fine, but they can't export them with any residue. So they need to use maybe a biological and something like that. Anyway, really fascinating examples. Uh, I learned a lot. 
I think you will too. I just love this series because there are so many different approaches to ways we can make agriculture more sustainable. And too many times the argument becomes we either need to produce food or we need to uh, lean towards sustainability. And, and there's so much middle ground in there. And I think we get to explore some of that here too. We have a special treat at the end where we get to talk about mollusks, molluscicides. I still can't pronounce the word, but I think you're, you're going to enjoy it. I thought it was a fascinating story too. Anyway, enjoy this interview with Dr. Pamela Marone, founder and CEO of Marone Bio Innovations. Dr. Pamela Marone, CEO and founder of Marone Bio Innovations. Thank you so much for being on the show again for the second time. Great to be here. Well, this is uh, definitely an exciting part of the Sustainability at Scale series that we're doing, and very pleased to have you um, back on. And we talked about when you're on the first time biologicals, and, and we'll use that term a lot today, but maybe for starters, if you could just at, at an elementary level uh, explain to everybody what biologicals are. The biologicals category is made up of three types of things. The first one is biopesticides, and that's a natural product. So it could be a microorganism like a bacteria or an extract of a plant or other natural substance like a pheromone mating disruption that controls a pest. So that's a biopesticide. The next category is a biostimulant, and that it doesn't control a pest, but it's also a natural substance or microorganism or natural substance or extract of a plant that uh, stimulates the plant's growth, increases yield, or reduces crop stress. And then the third category would be a biofertilizer, and that would be a biological substance, could be like, uh, or natural substance like humic acid or amino acids, um, compost, and that would be providing nutrition like NPK and micronutrients. So those are the three categories. The biopesticide category is reg you have to get approval from the EPA, whereas the other two are more at the state level. Gotcha. And, and now I know the, the biologicals category has been growing like crazy, and it's it's still smaller than your more conventional chemical uses for the same for the same product. Can, can you just take us back and help us understand historically why the chemical-based uh, solutions, why did they come on so much strong and the biologicals so much later? Well, chemicals are, have been, are they're, they're effective. They're, they're generally inexpensive. They work, and they've been around a long time. So the biologicals, the ones that uh, have been around a long time, um, BT, uh, Bacillus thuringiensis, the original um, first ever commercialized biopesticide is still on the market and quite a large product. But beyond that, it's only been really in the last 20 years and even the last 10 years where there's been new technology that's come on the market. So you really had, uh, outside of the BT, just little niche products that really couldn't compete on ease of use and shelf life and performance of chemicals. And that's changed. So today you have a, a lot of new products from new companies, and ours included, where there's a lot more science and technology behind the products. And so products are better in terms of performance, ease of use, shelf life, spectrum than they have in the past. So the category has, you know, you hear the term snake oil. That's, you know, has been referred to in the past that, you know, there's too many snake oil products and bathtub brews and 
there are still some of those products on the market, more in the biostimulant category. But to get through the EPA and regulatory process, and certainly California EPA, the Department of Pesticide Regulation, you have to have efficacy data for California. And to get through the EPA, you have to have a robust science-based product. So it's kind of weeded out other products that aren't as effective. So that there, that's where the the technology's changed over time. And I know one one of the areas when comparing, uh, you know, more conventional solutions to a biological solution is is in the mode of action. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? The differences there. Yeah. There's, there is quite a bit of a big difference in mode of action of biologicals with chemicals. So um, biologicals typically are multi-site mode of action. What that means is they work on more than one way on the pest. Today's modern chemicals typically work single side of action, which means they work one way. And it's usually like on, the, on, a, on, a, on a receptor, a nervous system, you know, a certain site on the pest. And biologicals, they're comprised of a microorganism that produces cocktails of natural compounds or like a pheromone that disrupts mating. So very, very different. We have a, a product, Green Devo, that produces the, the bacteria. It's a new species of bacteria found from under hem, a hemlock tree in Maryland by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and we commercialized it. And it has probably at least six different compounds produced by the bacteria in the bacteria cells. And so there's um, many different um, modes of action of that one bacteria. So it will repel. There's a compound that's purple called violacin that repels the bugs, and they stop feeding within one minute. But they don't die right, right away like a chemical might be much faster kill, so there's no knockdown. Um, but then there's another compound that's, that um, causes them to have se- severe distress of their gut, stomach, and they throw up, and then there's another uh, compound that stops them from them from reproducing, and they don't uh, lay any eggs. So um, very a comp- more complex mode of action. So that's a real advantage of biologicals in that pests don't develop resistance to biologicals generally, and so. Uh, an advantage is you can rotate or tank mix in with chemicals and stop the development of resistance. Yeah, so you can actually, and I know you mentioned that last time, so you could actually mix this with other solutions so that yes. you can limit the amount of resistance that might be building up over time. Yes, and we've actually proven that scientifically that you can do that. And why do you often see a, an enhancement or a synergy of a chemical and biological together in the same program, either as a tank mix or a rotation, because of those complementary or alternative modes of action. So the biologicals having a different mode of action will be working on a pest tar- in a target on a target that's different from the chemical. So you get better uh, results than either one alone. Hmm. Are there limitations? Are there some um, widely used chemicals that might actually kill the biologicals before they have a chance to to do their thing? Uh, there are um, living microorganisms that are sold as biopesticides that might, like, for example, a biofungicide. So there's, um, there's certain biofungicides based from, like, an example would be tri- based on trichoderma, which is a fungus, where if you look on the label, some of the chemical fungicides would kill them. Um, our products, um, we do work in a different way. We, we don't have to have live microbes. So our microbes um, can die off in the product. So in the jug or in the bag, we don't have to have a living microbe because um, our products are based on the natural product chemistry, those compounds that are made by the bacteria. So when, um, so therefore, we don't have to worry about whether it's going to die or not. So there's a there's different categories of 
biological, some living microorganisms and some non-living, and then the non-living relies on that natural chemistry, so then you don't have to worry about um, another chemical product killing it. Interesting. Okay, yeah, that, that I think that's an important differentiation. You know, this series is on sustainability, and as you think about um, marine bioinnovations and your contribution to sustainability, what story or stories come to mind uh, that just kind of make you proud of the work that you all are doing from a sustainability perspective? Well, you know, I was talking to a very large grower, one of the biggest potato growers in the country today, and he said something that validated what I already knew, but it was great to hear it from him. And he said is that, um, you know, he, he, has to, he has to harvest at all different times, and he has all different customers asking for the potatoes at different times. And it's a real hassle if there's a seven-day re, um, pre-harvest interval that a chemical has. And these pre-harvest intervals are, de- are determined based on the level of chemical residue that's allowed in the final product. Biologicals can spray right up to harvest. So he was like, I can go into the field. Um, if I, you know, I have a late pest I can, or disease, I can go into the field, quickly spray, and then I can harvest whenever I want. And he said that that made his <clears> – <throat> and then he reduces the residues. And so that made his whole program more sustainable for his buyer, the food channel who's buying – the, the potatoes from him. So that residue management and flexibility of getting back into the field and not worrying about that uh, pre-harvest interval was really important a sustainability factor for him. Interesting. So that even that even for him gets back to one kind of under under appreciated aspect of sustainability, which is economic sustainability. I would guess. I mean, what would he have done yeah. in the past? Uh, I mean, either had to limit where he could go with those potatoes, and or have to wait and let some spoil. Yeah, he would not be able to control the pest. Um, like depending on the buyer, you know, and the amount of residue allowed, he would just have to wait and the seven days. And yes, and then he would um, not be able to control the pest during that period, hmm. and not have the flexibility to come in um, quickly and, and harvest. So, so yeah, it was it's both economic, but also better for um, the perception and and his buy his buyers that he has he can use the biological right up to harvest and not worry about as much chemical residue, which is which is a, a consumer issue. You know, consumers don't like are driving less chemical residue. So the buyers um, in their sustainability programs are, you know, are, are having that as, as be one of their metrics. I am really fascinated, uh, Pam, by the, the just process of development of biologicals. They just seem so uh, complex. Um, so when, when you're starting the process, uh, or maybe actually a better way to do this really would be to, if you could just choose one of the products you guys currently have. I know you, you already mentioned the, the hemlock tree in Maryland, but, so, but maybe another one of where these, these biological compounds come from, how you discover them, and, and kind of when you're convinced that, that they solve a real problem. Yes. So we target. So we look at the market and say, okay, what what do farmers still need to to, to need help with? What solutions um, do they still need solved? And then we'll have our R and D. I say, go ahead and solve this problem. And so uh, we've done that a number of times and and said, okay, we need a better downy mildew product. By better better downy mildew product because there's not that many chemicals and it's a, just a tough one, and and we need a better white mold product because uh, bean growers and other um, and we're and leafy greens are just never get top control with chemicals. Even chemicals, you know, even chemicals don't work all perfectly all the time. And there's a couple diseases like that where 
Um, they're really problematic. So R, I said R&D, find me a solution for white molds and downy mildews. So they screened, they tested 18,000 different microorganisms that we isolated and they found one that was the best that both we wanted one that was going to get both both downy mildew and white mold at the same time. And where did that come from? And it's a new species, it's a new strain of bacteria. And where did it come from? Well, it was um we were out um doing some trials in rice and we whenever I go we go out, we collect samples in little baggies, we put soil or plant samples into little bags and bring them back to the lab, and then the microbiologists will um, put the the sample, some soil, into a blender with sterile water, and then put a, a loop, a metal um, loop in there, and streak it out on a petri plate, and then they pick the microbes they think are interesting. And um, this one, or or shows this one was one that in the first early testing showed some very, very interesting activity on downy mildew and white mold, bingo, the, the two areas that we were trying to control. So um, just be able to target like that was really exciting and say, I can solve a solution and get it to, you know, get to market in four years uh, from discovery to, to, to first placement with growers, four years time um, to be able to swing into action and solve a, a problem like that. So that became um, Stargus and Amplitude, which we've just launched in, um, in the fourth quarter of last year after we got EPA approval, and uh, Stargus for specialty crops and Amplitude for large acre crops. So there's an example of how we would um, how we would do it. We we have microbes from very exotic places as well. Majestine and Venerate is a very intriguing microbe from isolated from a Buddhist temple in J- garden in Japan, and that bacteria is so versatile that it produces both insecticidal and nematicidal compounds when it's growing in fermentation. And we've been able to uh, tell it, tell that microbe to uh, grow it in certain ways that it will produce these compounds. And um, over time, as we improve the fermentation and the manufacturing process, it's going to be the, the compounds produced by this microbes are very, very potent against nematodes and uh, and insects and over time i think um people are going to say wow biologicals can do that and uh and uh, it's uh it's finding the right microbe and i've i've been doing this a long time so finding the right mar- microbe and targeting uh, an unmet need in that case nematode nematode most of the chemical nematicides have been restricted mm-hmm. and so there was a you know real need to get some new products and now just a quick word from our Sustainability at Scale series sponsor, Marone Bio Innovations. Hey, ever heard of Marone's Bio with Bite? Marone Bio Innovations offers modern crop pest protection for the modern organic and conventional production systems. To make sure every grower using their products realize the best possible return on investment, Marone invests time and resources to thoroughly test and demonstrate the efficacy of those new state-of-the-art products. With serious trial data to back it up, you can see more and connect directly with Marone by visiting them at www.maronebio.com. That's M-A-R-R-O-N-E-B-I-O.com. Thank you so much to Marone Bio Innovations for sponsoring this Sustainability at Scale series. 
scientists isolate that microbe, does some really interesting Mm -hmm. things in trials, and then you have to do, you know, you have to gather all the data for what you mentioned earlier about how how you have to prove the efficacy of the product before you can get get it approved. So how long does that take? You mentioned four years. Is that all for just the testing phase? No, four years is from, is actually from generally from discovery to the first placement. We don't do a big launch. Like chemical companies will spend $300 million and 12, 11, 12 years, big, heavy capital and long time frame to get it and then launch, do a huge, big launch. Um, that's a very different model than what most biological companies do, which is um, because of the more more streamlined uh, regulatory process for biologicals, you can do it faster and takes about 18 months to two years for EPA approval. So we can um, we can we will launch the first version of the product with early adopter growers on a very targeted basis, maybe less than a thousand acres or something, you know, small launch, and then get um, with the first version 1.0 of the product and get feedback from our grower customers uh, about um, you know, we'll have we'll have you know one group of pests on the label, but they might 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 find a new a new use, and then we'll go back to EPA and add those. As we learn more and more about the product over time, we'll then add um, more uses to the label and get an expanded label, and um, and then R and D will be coming up with the next generation formulation, and they'll be um, working on the manufacturing process to um, like for example with Venerate, we went from um, eight quarts down to two quarts by Im- increasing the yield of the microbe and fermentation. That means you make we're teaching the microbe to make more of itself, and therefore we can drop the use rate. So um, I would. So it, it's important for people to understand that it's very different um, development process from a chemical, and you can get into the market early. So we like to have people help us continue to learn about the product um, and and tell us what they like about it and what things they they think that we could improve upon in the formulation, and and then because we can go back to the EPA in a quick period of time, unlike a chemical, you know you're going to see new versions coming out at more rapid pace with biologicals than you would with chemicals. Wow. No, I, th- I think that's r- really interesting. So, and I've seen pictures. It looks just like any other chemical application, right? As far as the, the packaging yeah. that comes in. Do you have to have considerations when you're when you're looking at what biological to, to put into the market? Do you have to have considerations of how it's being used as far as like how it's going to be applied, when it's going to be applied by the grower? Yes. And you know, each microbe is different, and the compounds produced by our microbes are different. And so sometimes they're, they'll be stable in a liquid form, and sometimes they'll not be. So Grandiva, for example, is a, a, a granule, wettable granule. It was a wettable powder. Now we've made a wettable granule, WDG, uh, whereas Venerate and Magistine are liquid because those compounds are stable in a liquid form. So we're looking at, what okay, what are the competitive products? What are farmers using and saying, you know, we don't want to be very much different than what they're already using. We want to make the product not seem like a biological. We don't, you know, it, we don't want them to fuss around with having to keep it alive and right. worrying about, um, you know, the shelf life. So we've designed our products to have at least two years shelf life. Most of them have more. Um, to, to be like a chemical, and then it can go into a warehouse in a hot warehouse in Fresno, California, in the middle of summer, <laughs> and you don't have to worry about it. And they could spray it out just like in their spray tanks, tank mixed with chemicals, and not worry about it. So we try to design our products so that they can have that ease of use, because even because there there has been skepticism in the past of the biological ca- ca- category. The one thing we want to do is make sure that 
the ease of use is not a barrier to using the product. Right. I, th- I think that's really interesting. So uh, it, I, I've heard you mention before, I, th- I think um, you've kind of got three different markets for this, right? You've got, um, because you can use this, uh, use your products on certified organic uh, operations, yep. you've got the organic market. This this potato example is really interesting about export. I didn't realize that <clears throat> there were different residue rules for export versus not export. And then, Oh, yeah. And then you've got, uh, you know, just in place of uh, conventional conventional chemicals. Yep. So as you approach this from a from more of a business strategy standpoint, are, are those like three different customers or do you have one customer that's kind of the sweet spot and you, you kind of hit all three or how does that part work? Well, you know, the organic's the low-hanging fruit. So, so, so they'll, they'll find us because they have fewer tools, they have fewer products to use. You know, a new product comes out and they'll be the early adopters. They'll be the first ones and they'll They'll already read a press release or read a trade art, you know, journal article, and they'll be asking for the product. So that's very different than um, you know conventional farmers typically. Although there are early adopter conventional farmers who will do the same. But you, yeah, so you'll have the organic farmer who um, will mix and match it with or, or other organic tools or use it standalone. Then you have the export grower, and we have a lot of those who have to worry about what their European or Japanese buyer wants in terms of residues. And that's different. Yes, very, maybe very different from what is allowed in the U.S. So um, that's, uh, you know, that's an intermediate kind of grower who stops using chemicals at a certain period of time and starts using biologicals. And then you have the full conventional grower. And, you know, where we're seeing traction with biologicals is with that with with all three of them but the convent we have a strawberry we have strawberry customers who have organic export uh, organic block and export block and a conventional block all on the same farm Hmm. and and a different price is getting different price points you know they're getting different price per box for each one and for the conventional full conventional where he's using a tank mix of our product with uh, with with their with conventional products, why? Because they've got a real problem with ligus bug and strawberry, and the chemical was only giving chemicals are only giving about seventy percent control. So they add in Grandivo or Venerate to the tank, and it boosts the uh, the control. And so they're th- we're seeing more and more growers using biologicals to boost the control they're getting, and they'll get higher yields and quality, and that's driving a lot of the growth. Yeah, the soft stuff like softer stuff residues is a real it is real economic but labor management can spray short re-entries can spray in the morning be back in the field in the afternoon resistance management like we already mentioned it could stop or or slow the development of resistance and then residue management those are all drivers of growth of biologicals but when it comes to it conventional growers are increasingly giving biologicals a look because they're getting a higher roi return on investment I've heard you mention um, ecologically based thinking. I want to ask you about that. It, you know, the show is the future of agriculture. How, how, in your opinion, does does the future of agriculture look different if, as an industry, we do a better job of embracing uh, ecologically based thought processes? Well, I've been on many been in this business a long time and and more than thirty years, and I and and there's been waves of books and task forces written about ecologically based IPM, and we're back to that stage again. I just was at a big think tank meeting uh, sponsored by UC and the Department of Pesticide Regulation. How how can we get more ecologically based IPM again? And I said, well, we talked about this 20 years ago. And um, and it was harder with product when you didn't have enough products to use, 
and 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 there are times. I mean, you, you could you, there are times when you just need to use an input, and um, you know, and but so so now because there's a lot more effective biologicals, it makes it easier to do um, ecologically based IPM because then um, farmer isn't as worried about as much worried about the risk of losing the whole crop without having um, adequate uh, solutions. So you can see there are examples of where there's there's a, a whole program that's based around ecologically based IPM and biologicals are the base of the program, and then you only use the chemicals uh, if needed in the pest get out pest um, you know, break out of a, a too big of a population. And that example would be Western fruit production, where with pears and apples in uh, in in Western U.S. California and and Washington, Oregon. There's uh, pheromones. Uh, pheromone mating disruption, it, which is a biopesticide, is the, the the base of the program for controlling codling moth, for example. And then when the populations are just too too high for the pheromones to control, then they'll own, and only then will come in with a, a chemical solution. So there are examples where where a whole program is developed around a biological solution, and you're going to see more more of that happening as there are more tools available that can do that. And why why did that why did that happen? That whole uh, mating disruption program with codling moth, because azenfosmethyl was restricted and eliminated by the regulatory agencies, and the growers were faced without alternatives. So they got together with UC and developed a whole program around this, which became widely adopted in the standard of use in the West. There are many examples of where you could now develop those types of programs for each crop, navel, orange worm, and almonds, for example, where the growers are reporting they're not getting the control they used to with chemicals. Is resistance happening? So there's a good example of where you could start saying, all right, let's go to a biological solution as the base and see how we can improve the pest management. So that's what you're going to start seeing over time. Pam, you started uh, your first company, at least I believe it's your first company, AgriQuest, over t- over 20 years ago. Um, if you were to look back at, at that point in your career and today, uh, what would surprise you about the way agriculture looks in 2018? Yeah, it's very different now. Um, actually, AgriQuest was my second company. My first one was called Entotech. I'm sorry. Um, most people forgot about, forget about that one. That was a that was a subsidiary of Novo Nordisk. Novo jumped out of, uh, of, of biopesticides and then jumped back in as Novozymes um, quite a number of years later because it was just too early for <laughs> biologicals and too hard. So what's changed? Back then, it was biologicals are for organic only. And there's still some of that perception, but now that's changing. Um, organic pigeonholes is organic only, and, um, and there was no thought that you could integrate a biological into a chemical system, a, a conventional program. So we had to change the paradigm um, of how these products were used. But there's a lot more um, technology now going on in the farm now. I mean, there's the advent of the digital farm, and there's, we're just at the very early stages of seeing um, sensors, digital technology, uh, gene edited, gene, new gene editing tools, uh, being instead of recombinant DNA or genetically engineered crops, where you put a foreign gene into a crop, with gene editing you can edit quickly in the same in your same crop um, and improve the crop. So there's all kinds of new tools and technologies that are popping up now that we didn't have 
20 years ago. So it is the most exciting time right now to be in agriculture as um, a dramatic shift in, in how we farm is going to, is, is going to be seen. Um, that And there's a generational shift of um, older farmers passing on to the next generation, sons and daughters, but also a lot of corporate farming and um, investor-owned farming operations where they are fast, fast adopters of technology and at least will try them and also, uh, also, also worried about sustainability uh, more so because, well, they actually see the economic component of sustainability, that it means more dollars and cents, and also worried about what the food channel is, is increasingly imposing restrictions on what you can do um, as, a, as, a, as a supplier. So there is an amazing explosion of, uh, of new technology going onto the farm and better irrigation, better water, better soil management, the, the, the microbiome or the healthy soils. Um, what's happening no longer do you, do you just leave your soil alone. You want, to, you want to know how many microbes and what kinds of microbes are in your soil so um, you can um, help that plant get a better start with a healthier soil. So all of this going on. I was on your website, uh, which is maronbioinnovations.com, and, and I, I learned a new word that I had <laughs> I'd never seen before, and that is uh, molluscicide. I'm probably butchered it. Molluscicide. Molluscicide, yeah. Yeah, molluscicide. Yeah. T- tell us about that. So this, um, it's called Zequinox, and it is based on a new strain of Pseudomonas fluorescence that was discovered by some scientists in upstate New York from a mussel-infested river. Invasive zebra and quagga mussels came from Eastern Europe in the 80s and then in, in ballast water and then unfortunately um, got out and uh, colonized the Great Lakes and then the, all the tributaries and have, have came and come in boats to the lower Colorado River, um, Baja uh, gone up to Canada, now spreading all over. And so uh, we have, this bacteria produces proteins that when the mussels feed on it, they they hate they don't like the, they don't like it they stop feeding and they blow up and die, and it's a very effective product and it doesn't harm anything but these invasive mussels. So we have a partnership with a large water treatment company to inject this dead bacteria into um, into pipes in power plants where the mussels the mussels will come from a lake, the larvae will be brought into the water into the um, process water or the cooling water into the power plant or the industrial plant, and then the larvae settle inside the pipe, and within one year will completely clog up a pipe. We can inject that pipe with the, with the um, Zequinox, the, the bacteria, dead bacteria, and it will um, stop the mussels. So it's a very, very interesting product, and um, uh, we're, we, we also even have a customer in golf courses because there's mussels have come into golf course um, ponds and we can we can uh, treat the bottoms of lakes as well. Interesting. Well, I don't know how many power plant owners listen to the show, but but uh, I just thought it was a cool story in itself, especially <laughs> in the context of, of uh, you know sustainability and, and sort of you know looking at things ecologically and being able to fight mollusks that way that, or mussels that way. It's really interesting. A lot of farmers are fishermen, and if they have boats, they will see that there's a lot signs around quarantining. They have to get their boats inspected because the the way the mussels are. The movement of the muscles are stopped is is by preventing them from being moved around in boats. So it is kind of a big pain for for fisher fishermen. So um, a lot of people will know about the muscles because there'll be signs all over, like Lake Tahoe. Um, you know, don't bring the muscles here from another infested lake. 
Makes sense. And I don't want to pry too much here, but but is there anything you can share with us as far as new problems that you're excited for, for Marone Bio Innovations to be solving in the future? Of course. I have to answer that one because it's weed control. We have products for controlling nematodes, insects, mites, and plant diseases, but weed control is a real tough nut, and there aren't really a lot, there are very few biologicals for weed control, but there's a lot of weeds that have developed resistance to chemicals, and organic farming is really hard to do because of weed control. So that's one of the things we're working to crack, and we have um, this microbe that we discovered from the, the Buddhist temple garden in Japan. Um, has makes some compounds that are very good weed killers and kills uh, gl- uh, weeds that are resistant to glyphosate or Roundup. So we're excited, very excited by that coming in the future. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Pamela Marone, founder and CEO of Marone Bio Innovations. What question did I not ask Dr. Marone that you wish you wish I would have asked her? You will get your chance. Go to speakpipe.com s-p-e-a-k-p-i-p-e.com forward slash future of ag and ask your question i am very excited to announce uh, and those of you who have already asked a question will be excited too that i will be releasing a very very short five minute or less episode every friday starting the end of this month the end of june uh, every friday i'm going to release a very short episode called follow-up friday and what that is going to be is if you have left me a message on speakpipe uh, i'm going to Play your question or comment and then add some commentary either from me or the guest in question to to address that. So I'm excited about this program. Uh, I would love to hear your feedback. If you're like, no, don't do that. We only can handle you 40 minutes a week by listening to this. Uh, I, I probably need to know that so I don't put all this effort into it. But if you're like, yeah, that's cool. I want a chance to be a part of the show and, and have my comment heard on follow-up Friday. Uh, let me know that too. At Twitter, I'm at Tim Hammerich. Thanks so much. We will be back next week for more sustainability at scale. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh, my God.